0: The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money.
1: Paul Rudy. I'm here with uh, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, how are Good you? Good to be here. And certified financial planner professionals David Rudy and Ryan Repka, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Welcome back, guys.
2: Thanks for having us. Good
3: morning.
1: You can call in with your questions to 356 9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351 5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. Nobody emails anymore. Everybody texts. I like to text. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without a first without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, welcome guys. Uh, well, everybody's happy, Fred. Uh, yeah. We had uh, a big jobs number last week. Friday seemed like everybody's biting their nails if because I right. guess the one before was really low, like twenty or thirty thousand uh, new jobs and and everybody at that point was, seemed to be somewhat panicked, and then, so there seemed to be a lot of reliance on this one. Most recently, last Friday, to kind of judge whether the economy still, you know, yeah. kind of plodding along, and it appears to still be plodding
4: along just nicely. Yeah, we always seem to have these uh, um, many kind of uh, issues or crises, that go away. I mean, every once in a while, it comes out that uh, we are worried about. Uh, uh, deflation and that that goes away. We were worried about uh, whether we're heading into a recession. That seems to be abated now. Even though uh, it's going to be slower growth, it seems like uh, the economy is uh, moving along all right now. And I guess the last two days, its uh, earnings reports aren't as strong as people hope. So there's always something, but uh, there's it always got to be.
1: There always has to be something to worry about. I mean, uh, it really
4: it's almost like there's a necessity to. Throw people off their game plan. Yeah, and I don't think the earnings reports were any particular surprise. Uh, it's, just, it's just
1: a lot of times it's the market fell today because earnings were a little less than people thought they might be. Yeah. You know, as if there's any re, you know real causation there. So yeah, it'd be interesting if they uh, said it ahead of time rather than after the fact. Right, it'd be like <laughs> saying you know the stock market fell today fifty points just after David ate carrots. Right, I, you know it may be true, but I'm not sure <laughs> it has anything to do with David eating, eating carrots. But yeah. it's amazing that if you look at almost every headline, it's this. It's something happened after something happened as if there's
4: causation. Well, I think the person that writes, they have like an hourly update on the Dow Jones and someone has to write something about, it. they can't just say it went up or went down, they have to say it went up maybe because of this. Or that. In the lies and the
3: I guess that's human nature. Yeah. I
4: always just
2: get a kick out of the fact that they'll usually like, talk about it as if the market's moving because of one thing. As if, like, one factor drives the the prices of every company across the globe. Mm. So, you
1: think they should say because seven billion overlapping (laughs) minds made a decision that, you know, (laughs) today there's more people want out than want in. Uh, But at the end of the day, they all reconcile because for every seller, there's a buyer Mm. uh, in those shares. But again, it's just noise that makes it difficult for investors to try to make any sense out of it because, again, it's, I think. And people have heard me say it before. I mean, probably one of the biggest ingredients for investor failure is spending too much time listening to the headlines, to the pundits, um, because, you know, they have their own mission. And, and, and to me, the financial media's mission is to extract our long term uh, perspective from us. And if they can do that, well, then you need to turn on the headlines to try to make your investment decisions, I guess. I, I don't know how anybody makes an investment policy out of headlines, but. Uh, the data is pretty clear that somehow investors seem to snag uh, a defeat out of the victory of Jaws. I was just I, I just added it to our newsletter to the Jaws. What did I say? Jaws of <laughs> victory. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not enough coffee this morning. I just finished up our newsletter. At least the, I think you guys got my draft. And one of the things I highlighted. My cli- My client newsletters are always about it's the kind of this, this behavior gap it's the it's the gap between people's expectations and reality is what causes the stress and it's the stress that causes people to take actions that you know to destroy their financial plans and their investing outcome and one of the things i used to highlight that is an updated version it was in the j p morgan asset management it's kind of an annual investor principles it's i think it's 66 charts it's really good uh, see, I'll even advertise for competitors. I don't care. I'm fair. <laughs> um, but I decided to use that and give them, of course, credit for it. But it showed basically over the last 20 years, I think it was ending 2017, about eight or nine, maybe it was 10 different asset classes. Uh, the broad U.S. market, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. kind of a benchmark 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio, along with just, uh, global returns and real estate returns. And it showed that and then they use the Dalbar study that actually goes and looks what uh people that are in asset allocation funds you know kind of like middle of the road uh using active management to kind of allocate assets what they actually earned over that time and it was the lowest return it was well below a sixty forty portfolio and every other asset class and that's just I kind of wanted to bring that into our newsletter again i suppose yeah that's uh, the
4: thing that uh uh, a year or two ago, someone, I think it was uh, Swag and uh, Wall Street Journal said, how do you write a column when you write you have to write the same thing 52 yeah. times a year? <laughs> and, <laughs> and the point is that investment ideas don't really change very much, but you still have to emphasize the same thing again and again. So it's a challenge to come up with different ways of, of kind of illustrating the same point. Well, and this is a little bit different, but that just reminded me of a good quote that I thought was worth
2: bringing up on the air which is Gene Fama. He's a, a researcher from the University of Chicago, uh, come out with a lot. He's actually a Nobel Prize winner at this point. Um, but he has a saying that he said, a really good new groundbreaking idea comes out about every 10 to 15 years in the field of finance. <laughs> but a new marketing strategy <laughs> comes out every week. Yeah, that's right. true. Uh, look, the
1: industry is, it's, the financial services industry is one of the least trusted uh, hmm. Industries on the planet. I mean, the, st- the statistics are always there, and I can understand. There's a lot of confusion thrown at people. A lot of mis—you know—they uh, mislead investors a lot. And, and again, I think it's by design. In other words, what Wall Street wants to do, in my opinion, is to look at look, take kind of a a look around, find out what people's emotions are, how they're swinging. One particular way, and then create a product of the day to deal with that particular emotion. Drew, after periods of sharp stock market declines like 2008, 2009, you'll find out a lot of uh, pushing of uh, fixed index annuities that are linked to the stock market that, 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 that basically suggests that you can have the return of the stock market without the risk. And of course, that's a silly on its face. Um, or in periods of really low interest rates, like we've been in, you'll see the marketing of higher interest rate type of bond strategies, whether it's junk bonds or going out to ho- longer maturities. And uh, again, so it's just it, it, it's kind of sensible. Um, one of the things we want to talk about today, guys, and it's going to be I think a big part of the show, and and I th- I think for good reason, um, the majority of people that are working out there are somehow involved in a 401k plan. Not all of them take advantage of it. I think some 70, about around three quarters of people actually participate if they have a plan uh, offered to them, at least last I looked. Uh, But that doesn't stop there. It seems like to me, after kind of watching people for 35 years, uh, participating, okay, that's really important. That's probably the most important function, uh, probably more important than anything else. But then... Uh, It comes down to questions of how much should I put in it and what choices should I make. And uh, there's a pretty, is it fair to say, guys, that uh, depending on just your asset allocation alone, there's a pretty wide swing in outcomes uh, at, at the time where you're thinking about retiring, whether that's 50, 60, or
2: 65, that would seem to be a big one. For sure, and the longer your time horizon is until retirement, the more that asset allocation change is going to make a a difference, the the wider the range of outcomes is going to be, because that just magnifies things. You know, if you have 30 more years to work, if you get your allocation wrong, it can have a huge impact. If you have two more years to work, well, only so much can happen in a couple years. But no matter what, it's important to make sure you get that allocation right to make sure that you're not leaving money on the table or or causing yourself to, to work more years.
1: And what kind of spurred this was I read an article um, that said nearly half of Americans age 55 or older have nothing saved in a qualified retirement account. It's the most recent data courtesy of the U.S. Government Accountability Office. A study found that 48 percent of the over 55 age group had absolutely nothing invested in a 401k or similar account or an individual retirement account. So we want to talk, this is kind of what spurred on this. Hey look, you got to do something about that it's there's uh it's tough when you're in the business we're in and um, I think we're a very welcoming firm and we get a lot of folks that walk into our door uh, looking to contemplating retirement and deceive and it and it's really difficult when somebody walks in at 60 years old and they have very little if anything saved and they're trying to make some sense out of retirement, and at the end of the day, they're gonna be uh, one of those group of people, which is I think about half the people that are retired. Um, Social Security is 100% of their income stream, and obviously that's a very important income stream.
3: It is, it becomes, like you said, almost everything that they have to live on, and Social Security was never designed to do that. It was meant to be an assistant or a crutch for folks to be uh, component of your many sources of income in retirement and as we're seeing so many folks today are relying on that wholeheartedly for all their uh, income as they get to the retirement age.
1: Is that a real crisis? Uh, or are we looking at the statistics possibly wrong, Fred? Or is, do you think intuitively, and maybe you've you know seen yeah. some research on this, but that
4: strikes me as a, a, that half the people essentially have no money. Right. I, I think it, it's probably a thing where uh for majority of people it's not a big issue but for a small percentage it's a really uh uh, devastating kind of thing but people may have been sort of living hand hand to mouth their whole lives and just going to have to continue in their retirement. But the, I, I think one thing, though, there's a big difference between studies that look at younger people and how they're preparing for retirement right. and ones that actually look at retirees. Retirees seem to be doing a lot better than people expect. So it, when, they, when they do studies about consumption levels of retirees, they tend to do uh, as well as when they were working in most cases. So it is a, a relatively small number of people. But for those people, it's a serious problem not having any savings.
1: Right. It makes you pretty vulnerable, and I think that's the last thing people want, or to feel vulnerable as they're
4: aging. Mm-hmm. Um, now the pro- the thing is, though, that uh, probably a lot of these people have been vulnerable their whole lives. I mean, uh, losing a job Fair or enough. getting sick or something like that. So it's not very uh, reasonable to expect that someone who's lived on the margin their whole working life is suddenly going to have a retirement that's uh, different from that. So it's, it's sad, but that's the... It's kind
1: of a reality, and I think maybe we lose sight of that reality. That Hey, there's an awful lot of people out there that are basically just barely getting by in society, even though they are working. And uh, maybe it's too much to expect. And yet, on the other hand, Fred, I've seen people that have had very high incomes that have saved nothing. Yeah. Uh And they're essentially, uh, for the rest of their life, they're on a treadmill, you know, darting around like minnows throughout the rest of their life. Uh So it's not even a guarantee that high earners... Uh, It's amazing sometimes to talk to a prospective client and kind of look back at their earning power that they've had. So this is not to be judgmental today. It's not saying, look, you're a loser if you haven't saved money. I think it is, as you said. um, It's easy to lose sight that a a good number, a good percentage of the people out there just, they're having a hard time just, you know, paying the rent, paying a mortgage payment, uh, trying to get their kids educated and fed and, and clothed. That's another issue that
4: obviously is... Not a part of the show, but certainly impacts all of that. But I think uh, uh, we talked about this briefly. Uh, that I, I think the emphasis has changed to a certain extent. Uh, it's not just investing; it's planning. Uh, no matter if you don't have any savings, uh, <laughs> right. uh, no matter how you invest, you're not going to do very well. So the, the the investing part, I think, has become a lot easier. If, uh, but the uh, planning part hasn't become necessarily easier. Is this?
1: Uh, well, I hear this criticism frequently, Fred. That you know, you can get through medical school and not have had one class on personal finance, and I, and I I use that kind of as an extreme, but I mean, how can we let children get through uh, K through twelve without ever having an understanding of how to how to run a checkbook? I know they do offer some classes, some personal finance classes, but I'm talking about a mandated one where they actually have to understand how taxes work, and they have to understand the time value of money and compound interest. And this idea of saving small amounts early, you know what the impact it can have it's mm-hmm. it's there's a complete uh, illiteracy out there uh, impact in this and if you don't know what you don't know uh, sometimes and, and we'll probably get into this guys, but obviously the earlier you start, those are your most powerfully invested dollars yeah,
3: and I, since it's not being really taught in the schools um, it's you're, you're as a child you're left to learn at home and if you're parents aren't aware of some of the things that they need to be doing for themselves it's not going to be knowledge that's passed down to the lower and the next generation so you go throughout your life maybe not having that foundation and you've missed out like you said paul in those early years that are transformative by investing early and allowing the magic of compounding to work over long decades
1: it is interesting to see guys uh the people walk through the door that you know, it, it may not have even graduated high school. Maybe they did, but then they they went right to a a, a tough job. Maybe it, you know something like I shouldn't call it a tough job, but you know a real working job at Kraft. Uh I remember obviously I'm um, Fred, and I remember when you know craft was almost new around here, and I remember a lot of kids from high school going to work for craft and they do that for thirty years, and and. Some of those people, even though they didn't make high wages, though probably was better back in the day, uh, they managed to kind of maintain the same house they lived in uh, since day one, raise their children, and managed to put a little bit of money away in their profit sharing and four hundred one k plan month after month. And all of a sudden, they walk through the door and they have five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, and they can't explain really how it got there, other than they just kind of did some of the things other people weren't willing to do such as not get a new car every three or four years and not move into a more expensive home and not going on facebook vacations Uh, so it can be done even at some modest incomes uh... but it is tough so we can we can start there so i know that paul junior my son paul wrote a blog about a blog about uh... k investing uh... titled six ideas to help you get the most out of your 401k so i thought we might use that as a framework today and kinda that's gonna spur some questions but the, the first one he started and we'll start and let's start there uh contribute enough to get the full employer match now is it some people don't do that or is it just not an automatic what's your experience when you talk to people do you ever see people uh that didn't put enough money in and capture the whole amount of free money
2: match yeah i mean i've definitely seen that before i think you know obviously i have a skewed perception the people who walk through our door tend to be a little more financially responsible so a lot i would say most of the people i see will pick up that match but there's a good amount of employees of companies who have a 401k plan that offer uh, a match up to a certain percentage of income and they contribute nothing right and it you know that's just free money that you're just giving up well, explain uh, how obviously. a match works just kind of its own basic sense and kind of what you might typically see yeah. So it, it can differ from employer to employer, but I would say the most common one I see is it, it'll they'll match maybe 100% of your contributions up to 3% of your salary. Or I've seen some where it's you know 100% of your first few percent and then 50% of the next couple percent. They do it different ways, um, but that's pretty much how it works. So it'll so match basically f- dollar for dollar up to a certain point. Right. And And, and so, let's
1: say somebody makes $30,000, and they'll match uh, you up to 3%. So if you're going to put in your 3%, you're going to put away $900 into the 401k plan, and then they're going to also make a deposit for $900. So it's
2: basically a 100% return, that year at least, on your money. Well, and I think another important thing to bring up here is sometimes people will have 401ks that really don't have the best investment options or they have higher expenses. And I think we're going to talk more about that later on. Do you think that's getting better as an aside? It seems to be, but I still, I've seen a couple where I'm just blown away at the expenses and the plan. Um, But if that's the case, I think it still makes sense to pick up that free money. It contributed enough to get the match, but maybe no more. Um, But that's where, because you always have the option, 401ks aside, of, You know, open up your own IRA or Roth IRA and contribute there, and then you can keep your costs lower. You have unlimited investment options, and sometimes people have that question. Well, which one should I contribute to? And I think the answer is if your 401K has an employer match, at least contribute up enough to maximize that employer match and get that free money okay see we have an email for Paul you mentioned the
1: distractions that impact people's investing investing decisions but I rarely hear much on the impact of the US federal budget debt and long-term investment thinking the federal debt is increasing rapidly and I cannot see how my US dollar is going to okay well I'll keep reading but this is this is I just want people to know and I I, and uh, I'm not sure who it's from but I want to thank them for this because these are some of the most common themes we hear that keep people from from actually taking action when it comes to investing. The federal debt is increasing rapidly and I cannot cannot see how my U.S. dollar is going to hold value as debt, as, as debt exponentially grows. Can you share your expert insight into how the debt will impact my investments in five to 10 years and beyond? Uh, thank you. Um, and then there's another one after that I'll get to. So, boy, do we hear this a lot, Fred. Uh, can't invest in the stock market, can't do whatever because the right. dollar's going, look at, I mean, it is a fact that the dollar, the value of the dollar technically has declined right. uh, pretty severely since the Federal Reserve came out, I suppose, that 1913 or, or so, yeah. and people point to that as a reason
4: not to invest, well, um, yeah. but,
1: well, but kind of give us some sense of perspective
4: here. Right. Uh, the argument is not the uh, debt itself, but the potential for causing inflation, and inflation obviously eats away at any asset value. But the uh, thing about the market is that uh, there is a, to a certain extent of compensation when, inter- when uh, inflation is high, interest rates tend to be higher as well to make up for some of the uh, uh, lost value. And, and the same thing presumably is true in regard to equity returns. So uh, in, in a high inflation environment, uh, the dollar value may be going down, but you may also be getting a higher return on your investment. So it's... Uh, it's not necessarily a guaranteed wash, but it is to a certain extent. The other thing, though, that I think you have to ask yourself, uh, what's the alternative? <laughs> uh, right. The alternative, obviously, isn't putting money uh, in your uh, mattress, under your mattress, or uh, it's a very risky thing to buy uh, gold or precious metal, things like that. So you have to ask yourself, what options are there? And, and, and do the best you can. Uh, there's a, It's not exactly the same thing, but there was an a op-ed piece in today's um, – Chicago Tribune, it says uh, people are advising not to spend all your money on uh, on Starbucks coffees and lattes and so on, and if you do that over a period of time, you can save money, and then the, the op-eds say that's not fair because the economy is bad and it's hollowed out and low-income people don't have a fair chance and so on. Uh, that may all be true, but the point is, you can't change the world, right. but you can change your own uh, savings behavior. So you have to ask yourself, what can I do? What do I have control of? You can't go out and say, well, I, I need to figure out a way to stop the uh, runaway debt. I mean, that, that's futile, but you can take care of your own finances. So it's kind of a, a bunker mentality to a certain extent, but it's a practical a practical. It's way. almost like uh, I'm going to
1: give myself permission not to do anything because uh, the, the op-ed says, uh, you know, the world's against me anyway, and I really don't have a fair chance, and the economy's terrible, and fill in the blank. Therefore, I'm not going to buy my lot Right, it should be more of a reason like no, that's precisely. Unless you really, you know, the more you keep doing what you're doing, the more you, the more you right. get what, the more you get. Yeah, out. it's not even if something's not your fault. Uh, sure, it doesn't make any difference. The world so works in a, a, this dollar thing because it creeps in all the time. Essentially, it's an impact of. Rise Of inflation over time is going to you know the purchasing power of a dollar is going to decline that's more of a reason then to seek out investments exactly. that, after inflation, have a promise to at least keep up with that if not enhance the return right. net of inflation and and I think that's the part that people miss it's i don't think we can deny that the value of the dollar' declined maybe some ninety some ninety percent, but people is it fair to say? Fred, uh compared to nineteen thirteen, uh when we started the Federal Reserve. I think that's when we started the Federal right. Reserve. Uh that people the general lot of human beings in America
4: are substantially better than they were then? By multiples. By multiples. Uh, so, was, you know, five so, or ten times. Yeah. So the point the point is it's not just a one dimensional thing. You have to look at all the all the moving parts. And again, uh I don't think anyone is expecting uh uh weimar germany kind of right, hyperinflation of or or argentina in the 70s or something like that that obviously is a situation where there's or venezuela today uh, those kind of situations i'm not sure what you do there's not not many places to hide in those uh, catastrophic kind of situations but uh, moderate or even a little bit above moderate inflation is something people can live with they don't like to and it creates some creates some challenges but it's not overwhelming
1: i th- i think a reasonable expectation would be over my lifetime i would expect something in the magnitude plus or minus of historical inflation which is trend line about 3% and therefore i must seek investments if i'm going to spend the if i'm going to sacrifice today for f- for the future down the road it would only make sense that i want to search out investments then after t- after really taxes and inflation but we'll just keep it with inflation uh f- have the ability if history is any guide to have more than offset it enhance
2: our lifestyles and don't you think too people don't always realize that the market is already pricing a lot of these things into the current market prices in other words everyone knows that there's this debt problem in the u.s and and in a lot of other countries throughout the world that's already reflected in current market prices and if that problem didn't exist they prices would probably probably already be higher than they currently are so the way the way I think of it is, you know, yeah, there's always going to be a number of problems in the world or things you can point to that could potentially be a, a tail or a, a headwind for investors. But because those things exist, prices are already basically lower because of those things, and because the prices are lower, that that causes the expected return going forward to still be positive. So in other words, like investors, especially professional investors, are sensible. They're not going to pay a price for something that they're only going to invest if they expect a a positive return over time. And basically, the the prices change according to kind of what's going on in the world. And when there is negative news, like I said, that's already reflected in the fact that prices
4: are already depressed because of it. And we have had, uh, surprisingly to a lot of people, 30 years of very moderate inflation. At the same time, we have run up a large debt. So again, it's not automatic that uh, the debt has some problems and uh, some very serious ones when it gets really large compared to GNP, but that's nothing that uh, should change people's behavior in terms of uh, preparing for the future.
1: Yeah, so when he uh, asked, can you share expert insights on how the debt will impact my investments in five to ten years and beyond, I mean, the best answer is, no, I really can't, especially in a five or ten year period, but I would say, if history's any guide, we'll probably continue to have increasing, I mean, we'll continue to have deficits, who knows? Uh, And all I know is uh, bonds aren't going to work very well in that type of environment. That's for sure. If someone has this outlook for high inflation, et cetera, it's probably certainly not going to favor bonds because bond returns after inflation and taxes have been somewhere between 0 and 1% the way I see it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't own any bonds, I'm saying, but that certainly is not a way to enhance. That would only allow you perhaps to tread water at best. And then you have to seek out investments that if that's your if that's your worldview, that we're going to have, well, a, a collapsing dollar, which would mean higher inflation, mm-hmm. higher than trend line inflation. Uh, it's kind of a dark view, but it could be, it's possible. Uh, again, over one's lifetime, all we know is the, owner, the owners of the great companies of America and the world, I'll add, uh, have earned two to three times the returns net of inflation than the bondholders of those same companies. I don't know what it's gonna be in the
4: future, but that would be my reasonable expectation. And you have to be careful about alternatives. You can say, well, uh, we're going to have inflation. Why don't I buy commodities? But commodities is a very uh, right. uh, chancy kind of situation. You that, to, you now get, you're,
1: really, you're speculating at that point, yeah. aren't you, Fred? For, well, for, I mean, people the, do it.
4: The argument is, well, if, if we have inflation, all these commodities are going to go up in value, and I'll protect myself. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't.
1: Yeah, Uh, you know, uh, at least with our clients, we stay away from that. Um, Of course, we really don't let our opinions uh, drive our investing uh, style. That's basically, we always uh, just fall back on what has always worked over time, and that is just having a reasonably diversified portfolio between stocks and bonds, uh, diversified within asset classes, and making sure you own enough shares of each asset class, and then making sure you own enough different asset classes, and uh, try to align that allocation with your goals, and in a way that historically would have gotten you from where you are to where you want to be, with room to spare. And we leave all the prognostication out of it. Doesn't stop nine out of ten people, I think, in the industry. Uh, but we certainly don't don't do any prognosticating, even though I do sometimes, guys. I, but I don't let it. <laughs> the important thing is, <laughs> I have opinions I shouldn't have, but I do not let it drive mine you know, investment outcomes and investment inputs. Uh, The next one, and this is a big one, and we kind of alluded to it, is choose the appropriate asset allocation. Now, first I'd say spend more time on how much can I save because that's going to eliminate a lot of problems to begin with. But second to that, another big one is this asset allocation. Uh, Guys, give me your thoughts on that. So let's take somebody who's just starting out in their 20s or 30s. And then we'll maybe move into 40s and then 50s. Let's try to do it by decade to see if there's much shift in your thinking. Uh, So take the guys that are your age, Dave, uh, in their late 20s, Ryan, early 30s. uh, One of your pals calls you and says, your your old college pals, I think you still have some of those evidently. They call (laughs) you and I know they do this. They say, what should I do? So I'll let each one of you take it in a generic version uh, from this asset allocation decision. How
2: do you approach it? Well, I always explain to them, look, if you're putting money in a 401 k, kind of by definition, it should be money that you're not going to touch until, theoretically, 59 and a half, but probably beyond that for most people. Most people work past 60. I think the average age retirement age is like 62 or something like that. And because of that, temporary declines really can't hurt you. So there's really no reason not to be 100 percent stock. Um, or just, you know, usually it's stock mutual funds. And right. then within that, I tell them, look, you want to diversify as broadly as possible to minimize kind of like concentration risk in your portfolio. You want to keep your costs low. And I think we're going to spend more time talking about that one next. But um, that's the main thing. Because sometimes people, even young people, will think, oh, but that's risky. Like, what if what if I lose my money? It's like, well, yeah, it's, it's going to fluctuate a ton. And I always tell them, look. This could go down 50 percent. I mean, it did. you know 100 percent stock portfolio was down over 50 percent in 2008. That's an unusually bad bear market, but it could happen, and when you're looking at 30, 40 years, there's probably a, a decent chance it will happen at some point during your lifetime. Um, but if you're not selling anything while it's down and you're actually adding money to it, then it really, if anything, is probably beneficial, because you're getting to buy everything 50 plus percent off. And kind of trying to reframe their mindset around what is risk really, and for a young person, I think it's more risky to not ha- to build a portfolio that doesn't have a high expected return, so that you probably you know if you're too conservative, you probably will never be able to accumulate
3: the wealth that you need to accumulate I, go ahead, Brian I, say I agree, and I think that. As you're a younger investor, and you know you're you're talking about it, Dave. You know bonds are an irrational investment. And is it, I think that's what you're getting at. Correct?
2: Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, why would I have my money in bonds, right? And it's like, okay, well, the reasons I see are, are twofold, really. One is just to to reduce fluctuation because I can't mentally handle it. And it's like, okay, I get that. If you legitimately can't, you know, if you're going to panic and sell if your portfolio drops below a certain point then you shouldn't be in that portfolio to begin with but I think younger people if you can reframe their mindset and help them realize that these declines are temporary and you have multiple decades to recover I think that's less of an issue so hopefully and then the other one is okay well if I need my money in the short run I definitely don't want to put it in something that fluctuates a ton but like but that's I said the nature of a 401k plan is not a savings account exactly so it's like okay well I really don't need bonds to fulfill either of those purposes at this point in my life
1: and as an aside i i remember that your brother paul did uh wrote an article that was picked up on cnbc.com and i think it's on our website uh this 29 year old advisor puts his money where his mouth is again that cnbc.com article that paul my son wrote uh is another one that the youngins people yeah. in their late 20s uh, i would say any significant differences in their 30s i i'm, I'm guess the quick answer is going to be no, but I'm just guessing.
2: No, I don't think it really changes until probably at the earliest 10 years from retirement, but maybe five years from retirement, you might want to reassess and start thinking about.
1: Okay, so 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s. But now we're saying, okay, uh, all, all of your contributions should be going in 100% stock versus bond. I think that's reasonable. It's not our advice to tell people that's what you should individually be doing. There may be reasons for you not to do that, but in a generic sense if you had to paint a broad brush, you'd say bonds are an irrational lifetime investment in that case and you probably want to concentrate predominantly, if not fully, in the stock market side. So now you, you triggered it. Uh, so now I'm thinking about retiring at 60 and I'm 50 years old. So now T- tell me your thinking and what you tend to
2: oh, uh, suggest to people. You know, I, I think 10 years out, it, it's a little bit tricky and everyone's going to be different. But I do think at least five years out, you want to start shifting more of your portfolio towards how you want it in retirement. So if you think, you know, hopefully you have a retirement plan, especially at that point. If you're five to 10 years out of retirement, that's a really good time to start building a more comprehensive, like legitimate retirement plan. It's gonna tell you, okay, well in retirement, I'm gonna have, you know, maybe at 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Because when when you start withdrawing money, then that's when bonds play an important role um, to kind of dampen fluctuation, but also be a source of withdrawals when the the market's down. Well, if you know you need to get to 60-40, 60% stock, and you're 100% stock now, try to maybe in equal increments, get from between 100% stock and 60% stock over the next decade. Or if it's five years out, you know, the same thing. And sometimes people will ask, well, why not just wait until retirement? And I think the issue with that is you could get hammered with a big, big market decline the year before you wanted to retire. And is, is that window around retirement, I, I, I talk a
1: lot about it, but you see it the same way. It's kind of like three to five years before retirement, you're probably gonna have more money than you ever had in your life and so you're more susceptible to a sudden really bad market condition at just the wrong time and to the same extent in the first three to five years is that kind of that is
2: that an area where you like to protect yeah and there's actually research too so they you know retirement researchers have looked at okay what's the relative impact of the investment return in each year of my life basically, on my lifetime outcome. And what's interesting is it's not like every year is equal by any means. And an obvious way to think of this, the return you earn in the first year of working is almost irrelevant because you have pretty much no money saved. It's the exact opposite when you get close to retirement, those few years before and after. You have the most dollars that you'll probably ever have if you're withdrawing a reasonable amount in retirement at that point in time. So the returns in those you know, five years or so Have a huge impact on your lifetime outcome okay we're going
1: to go to the phones i think we have stan on line one stan how are you today
0: good morning guys good morning uh i'm really enjoying your program thank you uh i think i i really don't think there's uh anything that you've said that i totally disagree with which is always interesting uh but stan wait a minute
1: we we might want to document this (laughs) that you called (laughs) wdws and you didn't have anything to you know I'm just kidding. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: I know I'm going along with it anyway. Um, as people get older, I haven't heard you talk about the advantages of continuing to have an all stock portfolio, but moving a, but making sure that you have a percentage of that stock portfolio in relatively high dividend paying companies like, uh, um, AT&T and Verizon and these companies that pay a four or five percent uh, dividend, because then you still have the exposure to the uh, market's continued growth in most cases. And for those those people that want to see that quarterly check, they still get to see a quarterly check.
1: Okay. So David doesn't have earphones on, so I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat I'm gonna paraphrase it if I do it wrong. Just accept my apology. Uh, Stan's wondering, and I think a lot of people do. Stan, I hear this a lot, um, and, and and so this is a this is a it's certainly something is not unheard of. Uh, why not have we have we ever talked about people being invested one hundred percent stocks? Maybe even throughout retirement, but focusing on the dividend income stream of maybe four or five or six percent as some of these companies have, and just live off those dividends, which mm-hmm. historically speaking have been a rising dividend income stream.
2: what's your guys take on that so it sounds like a great strategy, but when you look at the numbers, what you end up with is a much riskier portfolio so there's a large proportion, and I forget statistics now, but I was just writing an article about this but the majority of stocks in the US and the globe don't pay dividends. So by the very, by the very nature of the strategy, if you're only owning dividend-paying stocks, you're going to be excluding, you're going to have a much less diversified portfolio, which means if those particular companies aren't doing well, you're going to get hit particularly hard. But now um, Stan
1: and others, and, and I don't want to put words in Stan's I, mouth, would say... Really not what I meant. Okay, go ahead, Stan.
0: What I meant was the portion that they might want to put in bonds, they put into dividend-paying stocks. And I'm not suggesting uh, poor quality stocks. I'm talking about blue-chip stocks like AT&T and Verizon and, and these kind of companies like that, right. even uh, uh, some utility stocks. Yeah, So I'm going to translate so
1: it stands saying because since Dave's working with me on this, saying he's not saying put all 100 percent of your money in dividend-paying stocks as a strategy, mm-hmm. saying the money you might put in bonds say that say you're a 60-40 investor, yeah. and you're going to put 60 percent in stocks, and 40 percent in bonds. Uh, why instead of bonds, why not just use dividend-paying stocks there, so you have your broad diversified portfolio? Uh, frankly, if somebody can handle that risk, and it might be a little bit of a concentration risk, but if somebody can, I wouldn't tell them that they're crazy for doing that. I'm just saying, look, you're taking on a different dimension of risk than other investors. I might be inclined to do that because I really just don't like bonds that much. Uh, but I would have to model it in my plan that says, look, Stan, we've seen some major companies go under, go away, be d- dramatically impaired. pg and oh. right, Well, <laughs> I saw in the 2000 so... Going up to the two south two thousand seven two thousand eight debacle two thousand nine stand and these are just the little caveats that so in principle I'm not really opposed to that strategy and I think there's some sensibility to it I'm not it's not my recommendation but I could see some sensibility but following that strategy one person's idea of dividend stocks in the mid two thousands would have been bank stocks um, right. and I'm not saying I'm not saying that Stan's portfolio but this is what I've seen Continuity I literally saw oriented. I. I saw people do it one after another that said, well, look at the yields in these largest banks in America stocks, only to see that dividend tumble by 80% or so. That's uh, so there's some, uh, Stan, I think there's some a degree of reasonableness to what you're talking about, and I think you're probably coming from the angle that I sort of do. I really don't favor bonds for a 30-year retirement, but yet for most people it's a requirement no, I don't to at have all. some. So I think,
2: I think you'd be better off building a 100% stock portfolio and just taking a conservative withdrawal. Um, And the reason for that is I think sometimes people focus on dividends as if they're this magical thing that you get for free, but when a company pays its dividend, its stock price drops by the amount of the dividend that was paid. So it's really no different than having a 100% stock portfolio that pays out 4%, let's say it's 100% stock, pays out 4% in dividends. That's not any different than having a 100% stock portfolio and withdrawing 4% of the balance. You end up in the exact same place. I think that's what but I would do too. With a less diversified portfolio and a riskier
4: portfolio, but it also uh, adds a degree of complexity that's probably not necessary. That if you're up to the uh, challenge and like it, it's fine. But uh, why stop there? There's a whole continuum. There, there are uh, high grade bonds and yep. junk bonds and all kinds of things that have different yields. So you could put into the mix uh, a whole host of assets and maybe. Uh, Make do better for some people, but it 's really not worth the extra complexity yeah i 'm well, probably going to take an eight in that, in
1: lieu of that i 'm probably going to take eighty percent of my money, and put it in a globally diversified stock portfolio and twenty percent in really high quality short term bonds and I think we probably have a similar
2: structure a mm-hmm. uh, similar outcome uh, with uh, even broader diversification well and I think frankly most people still, even if they were living on the dividends, if you have a hundred percent stock portfolio in retirement let's say you go through a really big bear market, the the market's down 30 plus percent. Or 50 or 60. Or or 50 or 60, and you're withdrawing money from your portfolio, and again, if dividends are paid out, it's dropping the price even further, so it's not that different from just withdrawing. Most people are are not gonna stick with that investment strategy, so So there's almost a practical. Yeah,
1: I think for most people, Stan, it probably wouldn't work as far as emotionally, couldn't handle it, but I think if you can handle it, I mean. Uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a crazy idea. No. I would say, hey, if that works for you, uh, it really means that you get you have a better understanding than most people about what bonds can and can't do for you, and you're not comfortable with that. And and so that's one strategy. I think my strategy
2: is one I would choose. Well, and I think people but where it's a particularly I don't, I don't good fit is like people had a big pension. I'm sorry, Dave.
0: Just oh. to throw money away.
2: Yeah, I got
1: it, Sam. I'm gonna let you go because David yeah. doesn't have his earphones on. But thanks for the call because I think a lot of people. Have that question, Stan. Yeah. Thanks.
2: Yep. I was gonna say, sometimes, you know, we have clients that have a lot of pension income and they're right. living off that, and they don't care that either they're not withdrawing from their portfolio, or it's so flexible, the amount that they withdraw, then yeah, you can be 100% stock and and not really have to worry about it too much. They well, tend we to have, be less stressed. We and,
1: have a number of clients that are in their mid 80s that, you know, they, they, they may have three or four or five million with us, it's, and that's 100% in stocks, because they never touch it they don't plan on touching it it's just a legacy issue uh and they they get it they understand that the expected return of stocks come along with the the, the fee you pay along with it you have to have a lot of faith patience and discipline to put up with such a strategy uh, but what a rewarding strategy it's been uh, so if it's aligned with a particular goal uh, there's just not many people on planet earth can come close to anything remotely to a 100 percent stock portfolio through a three-decade retirement it's tough enough to keep people that are in a 50 50 allocation to not do something to not take action that will not that will destroy their lifetime outcome uh it, it's it literally sometimes it's all i look back and try to uh, I, I i don't know how i kept all my clients from jumping ship from the stock market in 2008, 2009. I, I, I look back and I, I wonder when I look, kind of look at how that played out. And I, I guess it was just my never wavering idea of, well this, if <laughs> this thing may become completely unglued Fred, it maybe the, maybe it's so locked up that we're gonna hit the reset button. But I still didn't think the appropriate cause of action would be to liquidate a perfectly good portfolio that now is worth multiples of what it was in those dark days. Uh, A a quick one, guys. We still have about uh, seven minutes or so, six or seven minutes. Let's get to the next one because I think it's important, cost. Uh, uh, So building a low-cost diversified portfolio, it's not hard to do, is it? Or or is it in most plans?
3: I mean, it definitely depends on what fund choices you have in your plan, but I think we're seeing more choices offer lower-cost funds, and you definitely see those with like an index-like fund. Um, But there are plenty of plans that we see where there's – cost for owning the fund north of 1%. And I think to just a general person, you say, oh, 1%, that doesn't sound very high. But in the investment world, in today's terms, especially when you compare it to like a Vanguard model, you can invest for pennies, like, right. you know, nine basis points or 0.09 rather than 100 basis points. So you see that there are, there are very low cost options out there. And I think it's one of the things that we actually have control of is the cost when we are investing. And- so much of investing, we don't have control, and we don't know where the prices are going to go or what the economy is going to do. But we can uh, choose the funds that we invest in, and and cost is one of those items that should be really moved to the top. And how you choose a fund choice, and I know one of the things that uh, Paul Junior had talked about in his blog is so many people, um, by no fault of their own really, look at the fund's performance over the the period that is listed in the in the prospectus or in their four hundred one k offering, and they say, well know this fund over three years returned seven percent, or over ten years it did nine percent, or whatever the numbers may be. Right. And on its face, it seems. Oh, that seems. Well, I like nine
1: percent better than seven.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that seems better. And maybe you compare that to some of the other fund choices, and you say, all right, that's the one I'm going to go with. Uh, the problem with that is, and if anyone who's ever read any financial literacy or, or financial documents, it'll say that fund performance is not indicative, or current performance is not indicative of future results. Um, simply saying that this could not could go away tomorrow, and we don't know what's going to happen. And
1: everybody it, gets a disclosure annually, at least once a year from their 401k, they're from their company, essentially, that isolates the actual cost of every investment. And I can tell you what I do. First thing I do, I basically screen them, okay, what's the cheapest investment in here? And if that happens to be a U.S. Uh, total market index or a Standard Poor's 500 index fund, I'm going to put 100% of my money in that and forget everything else unless they're really low cost as well. What's your take on that?
2: Well, that's I was actually going to bring that up and ask you because one of the things that can get tricky is, okay, I want to build a diversified investment portfolio. Usually, I, I almost always see an, a Standard & Poor's 500 Index Fund in 401k plans, usually very cheap maybe not as cheap as it should be, but still cheap. Right. But then sometimes they'll have only like an actively managed small cap fund, right? Um, or an actively managed emerging markets fund or international fund. And it's tough to know, okay, well, is it worth the extra diversification, even though it has higher costs? And sometimes that's a judgment call. To me,
1: that, I, I just tell you what mine is, and, and I know you don't always agree with it. I default to the Standard & Poor's 500 index or a total US market index fund unless the expenses unless there's other index funds that are in there like so that i could capture small cap fund or low-cost international fund if they're anything other than index funds i just i always tell people to default to their lowest cost broadest us index and it's typically a standard ports 500 index fund uh, i'm not going to pay one and a half percent for emerging market index fund uh, I'll, I'll try to do that somewhere else Uh, that's where you might say, well, okay, I can also put some money in an IRA account or an IRA Roth account, um, and I'll get my diversification at Vanguard there uh, very inexpensively. Even outside
4: a qualified plan, you could put it. Of of course. Capital gains then, you would not have. So a
1: quick one. We have two minutes, and and this really could be a whole show. Uh, Roth
2: versus the traditional. Do I take the traditional or Roth? I think people spend way too much time worrying about this because usually there's two situations where it's obvious. It's like, okay, if it's your first job, your income's probably at the lowest it's ever going to be. It's probably a good idea to do the Roth because really what it comes down to is, well, is your, your tax bracket right now, your marginal tax bracket right now lower than it will be in the future when you're pulling that money out? Well, if it's your first job, chances are that's the case. Now, if you're a doctor and you're, you, right. you know, you're making a few hundred thousand dollars a year, it's kind of a no-brainer to do the traditional.
1: So which more important, uh, how much you save,
2: asset allocation, or the Roth versus traditional? It would go in that order, but not, not even proportional. It'd be like the Roth first, traditional almost, it'd be like 1% difference. It's not going to drive much outcome difference of whether you get to retire when and how
1: you want versus how much you save in that right. asset allocation. Those are two of the biggest levers that you have on moving uh, retirement forward or backward uh,
2: in, a, in a pretty significant and deliberate way. So uh, I I think you can always ask a, a CPA's opinion too on that. But I really, like I said, I don't think it's crucial. A lot of people, it's tough to know. To me, there's if you're so in a, many uncertainties yep, over your lifetime right. that, like I said, if it's I, obvious, you so know, twelve
1: percent marginal tax bracket, go ahead and do the Roth. If it's twenty four, uh, twenty four or twenty five in that area, uh, I'm probably going to do. Half one year and half the next year. Half. I'm just going to hedge my bet because it's Mm -hmm. unknowable. If I'm in that 37 or 35 percent tax bracket, it's a no-brainer. I'm going to go ahead and do the traditional route. So if you're in the middle, kind of flip a coin and do every other year or half and half. If you're in the zero to 12 percent marginal tax bracket, favor the Roth. But again, don't spend too much time on that one. Spend a lot more time on. How can I get myself to save more money, and how can I convince myself to put it at 100% in the stock market and zero in bonds? That's going to be much more. Well, if history is any guy, there's past performance is no indication of future results. Ryan gave me that stare. He's our compliance officer. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I think the next show we can even pick up on this a little bit more. But, uh, guys, thanks for coming in. Dr. Fred Gertz, thank you for here. joining us. And we'll be back in two weeks.
0: Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.